You're listening to the Clear Creek Resources Podcast from Clear Creek Community Church, located in the Bay Area of Houston. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Clear Creek Resources Podcast. I'm Ryan. I'm Rachel. Thanks for joining us on this episode. All right, so Rachel, we just had our second forum this past weekend. What'd you think? I thought it was so great. I thought the speakers were excellent, and I learned a lot, and it was just a good time. Yeah, I thought it was a great way to close out the faith and technology message series and be able to get some really practical things and uh, just some continued resources for all of us. So for those of you who are listening, if you missed that in-person tech forum, you will be able to check it out online. We're going to put it on our website, clearcreekresources.org in the coming weeks for you to be able to check that out. Uh, that's just one of the great things about Clear Creek Resources to be able to continue that conversation. So hopefully it is a blessing to you as you continue to grow and thinking about how faith and technology all mix in there together. All right. So, hey, Rachel, why don't you tell us about the conversation we're going to listen to today? Yeah. So, you know, there's all these issues coming up, which I think when we're talking about technology and we're talking about anger, you know, we're all thinking about all these things that we see online all the time. Uh, These topics come up in the world and we don't always know how to respond as Christians. So we actually invited Dr. Russell Moore onto the podcast to talk us through some of this. And for those of you who don't know who he is, He's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Convention. He's written lots of books, including The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul, and Onward, Engaging with Culture Without Losing the Gospel. And he's just a thoughtful and helpful voice on engaging culture as Christians. You know, whatever your thoughts are on specific issues, I hope that you find this conversation helpful. Dr. Moore, welcome to our Clear Creeks podcast. I'm so grateful that you have joined us here today. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. So, Dr. Moore, when I graduated from law school, I had a sort of crisis in faith, not faith in Jesus. I was sure about him, but a crisis in how my faith was supposed to impact this broken world that Mm. I was learning so much about. And not only that, but some confusion with how I saw some of those who confessed Christ to be responding in the world. And I think that uh, this past year, a lot of other people have had a similar reaction and response to everything that's going on. How do we, how do we respond? How do we engage in this world as Christians? You know, it's, it's hard and it's tiring. So you're here today and you're going to tell us all the answers in the next <laughs> few minutes. It's really exciting. <laughs> I wish but, I had all those answers. Yeah. No, you do. I can't wait. <laughs> so I want to ask you first, I think that as Christians, we, we sort of think in terms of opposition, that we're in a cultural war. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that the right way to be thinking about how we engage in culture? No, I don't think it is. And I, and I think the that sort of a mindset does a number of things. And, and one of those things that it does is it tends to um, it tends to trivialize our view of sin. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's kind of counterintuitive because a lot of people think that a sort of constant culture war mindset makes me uh, stronger against sin. But that's actually not true because a culture war mindset assumes that something uh, unusual is happening right now mm. that can be brought back to quote unquote normal, as opposed to seeing the fact that since the fall, uh, the, the universe is this mixture of what God has declared to be good 
and what is fallen and broken. And the fallenness and brokenness is always there. It's just going to manifest itself in different ways. And so I think a culture war mindset, the way we normally think of it, can detract us from having a spiritual warfare uh, mindset, which in the New Testament decreases the, the sort of temperature with which we view the outside world because we see where the real problem is. So uh, when Paul writes to Timothy, for instance, in 2 Timothy 2, he says, treating your opponents with kindness and gentleness. And why? Because you know that people are held in captivity to the devil, just as you were uh, prior to the gospel, and held in captivity in different sorts of ways. So I think a, a culture war grounding can often um, can, can often turn us into the very thing that we think we're warring against. So you said so much, so many great things, but but one thing that struck me is, is, um, you know, Paul talking about our opponents. So if, if we shouldn't be thinking about this as a, as a war, then I think that that's helpful because who is our enemy? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. how do we think about our opponents? So who are the people who are sitting across from us? And then who is the real enemy? Well, if it's not yeah. the culture. Well, I think that the, the New Testament uh, says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so what we have to ask is, how do those principalities and powers work in, in Scripture? And it seems to me that they work in two ways. Um, one of those ways is through deception, and that deception looks different. I mean, if, if you look at, for instance, the way that Jesus uh, the, the way the devil tries to to lure and to tempt Jesus in um, in the Gospels in the in the wilderness, it's through uh, feeding, it's through uh, ruling, it's through vindication, it's all of those things that can happen in multiple different ways as long as they come apart from uh, God and through the self and through the flesh. So that can manifest itself in conservative ways and in progressive ways and in centrist ways and in in any possible American ways and Indonesian ways and and, in any possible way there. Um, And so that's part of it. And the other is accusation, um, which is to say you are condemned with no hope. Um, and, And that's just not the way that Jesus operates. So I think I think one of the problems that we tend to get in in the church is that we take what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, when he says, it's not those on the outside that I judge. Uh, what, what do I have to do with judging those who are on the outside? They have no accountability to me. It's those on the inside uh, that I judge. And he says, when I, when I told you not to associate with people who are immoral, I'm not talking about people in the world. Uh, otherwise, you would have to leave the world. I'm talking about those who bear the name of brother or sister. And it's easier, though, to turn that around because we live in a world that's sort of Darwinian tribalism where I'm protecting my tribe. And that means that you're bad, we're good. Uh, but the gospel just inverts that and says we hold one, one another accountable for our, um, for our witness to Christ. But we don't expect the world to somehow be accountable to us. Instead, we're bearing witness to the gospel. And so we're, we're, you know, Jesus just is not surprised and shocked when he's encountering people um, who are in in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's not shocked by that at all. He's speaking to them with this word of, of invitation and gentleness. 
And I think that ought to be our model. So if you're trying to speak to people with invitation, but we sort of feel like we are surrounded um, with this perception of Christians and not just Christians, but the tenets of Christianity as just inherently hateful and judgmental, you know, how do we hold on to the truth, biblical truth, and still and still present that as an invitation? Well, I think the way that you do it, I mean, you're an attorney. Uh, so I think the model is not a prosecuting attorney. The model is a defense attorney. Uh, a prosecuting attorney is trying to win, trying to, to see someone convicted. A defense attorney, though, is on the side of the, the person who's being accused. But that doesn't mean that the defense attorney is just accepting whatever that person says. You have to say, look, we have to be honest about what you're up against here. And I, in order to be on your side, I have to tell you the truth. And I think the same thing is true in terms of the way that we operate with the outside world. We speak the truth. But if, you're try, if your end goal is reconciliation, and what you want is to persuade someone, then you're going to speak in different ways than you would if you're just trying to make a point and you're just trying to win or to humiliate someone. It's very, very different. How do you respond? Because you're really in the trenches in these issues, like we said. So how do you respond, though, when you're sitting across from someone who's angry at you, who thinks that, you know, who who is treating you in a way um, that isn't kind. How, how, how do you actually think through that when you're across from someone? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to realize they're usually not mad at you. Um, in, in almost every case, uh, what's happening is when I'm talking to, for instance, someone who has a, who, who's kind of coming against me because I'm a Christian or because I'm an evangelical Christian, in almost every situation, this is someone who has had a bad experience with some religious person or some religious people, a mom or a dad or, you know, an uncle or an aunt or a pastor or a youth pastor or somebody. And so that's really what they're responding to. It's not a personal thing against, against me. And so if, if the, if, if I have a sense of myself in Christ, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm not, I'm not seeking strangers approval on everything. Uh, then I'm able to sort of bear with that in the same way that you would. I mean, there are all sorts of people that um, you've had uh, who have had really, really hard days <laughs> and they sort of erupt at you and you realize, look, they're, they're not mad at me. Uh, they're, they're mad at what's going on here. And so I'm going to not inflame the situation. I'm going to come in and, and speak in a way that's going to try to get to where we're actually trying to go. It sounds very others oriented. If you're not seeking their approval, but you're also really thinking through what's happening in their world yeah. and not your own. Yeah. And, and I think um, it, actually, if you're seeking uh, people's approval, you're actually going to end up not getting that at all. Because you know, sometimes the best, um, yeah, I have a lot of really close friends who completely disagree with me on uh, the most basic uh, things. Uh, one I was talking to just before I, I got on here. The way that those relationships uh, deepen is with a kind of trust where people understand, okay, this person isn't playing me. This, this person is actually treating me like a person, um, which means we can have uh, open conversations about where we disagree. Sometimes those start 
with sort of you're awful, you're evil, uh, so forth. But if you bear with those people and you um, and you learn to love them as people and you're not intimidated by them. And I think sometimes that's what happens with Christians is sometimes we have a kind of inferiority complex mm-hmm. uh, where we, we really feel as though, well, we're really just not as intellectually um, up to par with someone else. And so that gives a kind of defensiveness. But, if, you know, we don't have anything to be defensive about um, if we believe that Jesus is alive. So you think that we can speak with conviction and be kind and be rooted in the truth whenever we're engaging with people. Yes. And I think ultimately what happens is um, that is what not only is faithful to, to the way Jesus taught us, but it also is what gives um, it gives confidence to people because people are then able. I've had, I don't know how many times where someone has called me and has said, I feel like my life's falling apart. And I feel like I can talk to you because you've you've always told it the way you saw it to me. Um, and, and a lot of times in having conversations, most of this is going to happen in conversations that are private, not in conversations that are theatrical. So uh, it, it changes the whole dynamic if you're talking back and forth on Facebook or on Twitter, as opposed to if you're talking one on one. But if you will treat people with respect and kindness, including in those sort of public forums where you're making it clear, we may disagree, but I don't hate you and I'm not I'm not out to humiliate you. And your humiliation is not a win for me. That's not that's the goal. not the goal. And then you're able to have um, to, to, to find points of connection at the creational human level. I mean, the, every every body, uh, the scripture says, is fallen. All of us are fallen and all of us are sinners. So we have that point of connection. But even before that, we're all created in the image of God. So there are there are certain common human aspects that you can find to to connect with people as uh, fellow human beings. And, and usually to see this as a long term sort of project, there aren't many people who change their minds about anything, you know, small things, much less really, really big meaning of life things. At the, as the result of a 20-minute argument. Instead, people are, sometimes I've found even people who are arguing a lot with me aren't really arguing. They're sort of trying to think into process. And I know I do that. There are times when I've changed my mind on things and the, and, and the, sort, of, um, the sort of, you know, good-natured debating I would have with somebody about that would accelerate because I would say, well, what about, what about, right. what about? And what I'm really trying to do is to think that through in terms of my own mm-hmm. objections. A lot of times that's what's going on with people. And you, you be patient with that. Be patient. Yeah. Well, well, one thing um, that I think can be hard, too, is not only how we're engaging, you know, with patience and humility and in relationship, but also what are we engaging about? Because we're and we're inundated with issues all the time from satanic tennis yeah. shoes mm-hmm. to you know, um, leaders abusing women to persecution of Christians around the world. I mean, it, there's so much. So how do we discern, you know, when and what to engage about? Yeah, well, if you notice in the life of Jesus, uh, Jesus is refusing to get drawn into uh, fake controversies altogether. Uh, so sometimes not even answering uh, the, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's also 
though refusing to get into the middle of controversies that are going to be diversions from his mission. So what Jesus does is when he does enter into some controversy, it is always in order to bring that back around to what it is that he's actually announcing, which is the kingdom of God. So he'll hold up Caesar's coin and say, Who does, whose image is on this? Or he'll start talking about um, the, with the, the question about the woman who had uh, seven husbands who've all died and whose, whose wife will she be in the resurrection. Jesus doesn't sit around and, and do the back and forth with them, but he does take that opportunity to start talking about the power of God in resurrection. So I think you have to have a level of discernment where you, you really do understand what is, um, what is true and what is false, but also what's important and what's unimportant, what's, what's trivial. And you're sometimes going to get that wrong. We're always going to get that wrong sometimes. But we, we have to try to be doing that. And then, um, and then also asking not just is this uh, an important question, but is this an important question for me to be addressing right now? There's a lot of questions in that yeah, question. I mean, yeah. it, but, should it be me? Should it be right we now? We all deal with that uh, all the time with people that we know. So, uh, you know, I may have um, I have a, a friend who's an alcoholic um, and, and is is really his entire life is imperiled by alcoholism. I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, worried about, you know, uh, how much, you know, some other some other issue that's going on in his life that I might worry about if it were somebody else. But I'm going to say that's not that's the least of his problems. And he actually might want to talk about that to keep from talking about the real issue. So I think you have to sort of have the the, the kind of wisdom uh, to see that and to know that whether you're talking about personally or you're talking about broader than that. Yeah. It sounds like you see a lot of these issues as opportunities, too. Because if if you're looking for common ground with people that we all share together, all made in the image of God, you know, all all you know, all looking for something to redeem us, then you can use issues that might be ancillary as a way to get to the yes, real issue, or or sometimes um, to to talk about how we can uh, to talk about what's really what are we really talking about when we're talking about uh, something. So, for instance. Uh, you mentioned satanic shoes. Uh, you know, by the time this airs, even if you if you post it tonight, that, that that will probably be so far gone in terms of people's minds. And why? Because it's one of those fake controversies and intentionally fake controversies. Because somebody wants to sell shoes, and the way you sell shoes is by um, is by creating a, a controversy where people are saying, "Oh, isn't that awful?" Uh, what they're doing so that you can get the people who kind of want to feel naughty uh, buying the shoes and they sell out. So that's a that's that's what's going on there. But you can say, hey, wait a minute, though. Uh, what does satanic really mean? Um, how does Satan actually operate? Uh, because if you think that what Satan wants to do is to come out into North American culture and say, uh, hey, let's talk about blood and, and human sacrifice and, and scary satanic worship, then you're not understanding exactly how the devil works, according to the New Testament, which is much more subtle than that, you know, to go back to, to Genesis 3. So you can sort of get behind some of these conversations sometimes and say, 
hey, what is it that we're really seeing here and why uh, does this matter or not matter? Yeah, that it seems to me that that takes a lot of discernment, but also takes a lot of patience because there is a sort of temptation to think, okay, this is going on, which I know isn't really okay. So I'm going to respond right now. And usually that response is in anger. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up for Jesus in this moment. And that's what I'm calling Well, not only that, I think you also have to kind of know your own um, places of vulnerability. So there, there, we all have different points of temptation. And you have to say, where are those points of temptation? So, um, you know, I have, uh, I have a, I mentioned an alcoholic friend. I've got a, a friend who's a, been a recovering alcoholic for years and years and years. He won't go to lunch in a restaurant that has a, a bar in the restaurant because he knows that that's a point of particular weakness for him. It's not for me. I don't even notice that there's a bar in there. But then I've got things that are points of vulnerability that wouldn't wouldn't phase him. So you have to know that. And a lot of that comes down to when it comes to arguing. If you're the kind of person who enjoys argument and controversy, um, what, what the scripture calls an unhealthy craving for controversy, then you need to be as far as possible away from it, uh, not putting yourself into that place of um, that place of temptation and recognizing, hey, this is how my tendency toward the flesh will manifest itself. So I'm not going to, that's not a safe place for me. Well, I think that one thing that is unique about you is that you love the church, not just your local church that you grew up in, but also the universal church. You love the history of the church, you serve the church, but you're also unafraid to challenge the church when you see the need to. So how do you hold those two things together with, um, unapologetically loving your church and serving it in the world, but also continually calling for repentance and renewal? Well, I think we have to because anyone that that you love is someone that you're going to want to be in relationship with. And I think that's the case uh, with the church. And not only that, but the church is giving a picture to the outside world of here's what we mean when we say Jesus, and here's what we mean when we say repentance and faith. And there are a lot of people who um, one of the problems that they have with the gospel is not intellectual. And I know that because I was one of these people as a 15-year-old. The problem is not intellectual. The problem is saying, is this real? Is this just a, a market or is this a political thing or is it something else? Because we're all accustomed to seeing that where uh, th- there's something that is just serving some other uh, purpose. And that leads to a, a good bit of cynicism. So you have to have a church that knows how to uh, be faithful, uh, but also a church that knows how to be reformable. And um, as the, the Reformation uh, principle put it, we're always reforming uh, according to the word of God. So always saying, are we, uh, are we walking in the light that we've been given in the word of God? So you love the church. And so you can do both of those things. You can appreciate it and also call for change. Yeah. I think that, I think that's the only kind of change that can happen. You, you, you can't have um, change that happens from people who don't love the church, who don't want to see it succeed. Um, but you also can't have change from people who say, 
um, what we need to do is to protect the image of the church. And the way we protect the image of the church is the way that uh, the world does by pretending that there's nothing here, that, that there's no problem. Then you're going to end up with a situation where if, as the uh, New Testament puts it, that the church is the temple of the living God made up of living stones, God takes that temple very, very seriously. I mean, notice the way that Jesus um, uh, deals with the temple. He he takes the temple seriously in terms of the place where God is uh, ha- has made his presence known and also how the temple communicates who God is to the outside world. So the, the court of the Gentiles and, and where they are um, in, in terms of the, the marketing and the, and the money uh, issues going on. So we have to take that very seriously as well. So it seems like that we also can consider the same type of relationship. If you're thinking about people outside of the church too, if, if you love people and you love this world that God created, you're also willing to, um, be kind and persevere with them, but also call for change. Yes. It's not really very, it's not dissimilar. It's not dissimilar at all because, um, because there's, you're not going to love people if what you want is to see them destroyed and just and to be an accuser of them. That's what the devil does. They already have they already have that going on. Um, but but you're also not going to um, you're not going to be able to love people if you just conform yourself to whatever their expectations are of you. You're not able to do that either. Just conform to the world. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus is so unusual um, in in the New Testament documents because he's relatively unperturbable. Uh, the, the, the moments that Jesus becomes angry or anguished are rare, and they have nothing to do with what's going on uh, in, in a way that would anger or make uh, everyone else anxious. So when you see when you see everybody freaking out in the Gospels, Jesus is decaffeinated. You know, the, the boat's about to fall apart. Jesus is asleep. Yeah, he's being arrested, and Simon Peter's cutting people's ears off. Jesus says, what are you doing? You know, and then when Jesus is sweating blood in the garden, his disciples are asleep. You know, uh, when he's in the temple— and is is enraged. Everyone else, no one else is is even sees anything unusual happening here. He's he's just operating on a different level. What what? So I love reading. I love books. So I think in terms of story a lot. How does how does the story that Jesus is the center of this cosmic story of a creation through Jesus? Um, it's broken, but that he became a part of that he died for but he's now risen and he reigns and is redeeming it. How does this huge cosmic story inform our own small stories, this little small corner of our own world, whenever we're fearful and we don't know what to do, how, how does that inform us? Well, I think um, if you think about what Paul says in Romans eight, uh, you know, a lot of people know Romans eight twenty eight. all things work together for good for those who are the called people quote that a lot. But sometimes they, they miss Romans 8.29, which says that what God is doing is conforming us into the image of Christ. So what that means is there's nothing. Uh, God knows who you are. Uh, Jesus came looking for you, knowing who you are. 
So there's nothing surprising about you or shocking about you to him. He came looking for you anyway, knowing all of that. And everything that's happening in your life is uh, involves him in some way or the other shaping you and forming you for a future that you can't imagine right now, which means everything that's going on in your life has a lot more meaning than what you assume, but it also a lot less is at stake than sometimes we assume. And by that, I mean this. Uh, sometimes one of the reasons that we're so frantic, um, why we compete with one another and, and so forth, is because we have this assumption um, everything's at stake, uh, you know, in this job or in this promotion or in this um, whatever. Well, it's really not. I mean, what, what you're in right now is an internship uh, for your future that God's preparing you for. And you don't, you don't really know what that looks like or what that's going to be. But it's kind of like the person who uh, is sort of looking backward to high school or even beyond that, looking backward to preschool and obsessing about, you know, awards that they would have received in preschool or, or, or so forth. That's really kind of pitiful because you're, you know, you, you've moved on into your, your future now. Don't, don't be looking backward into the past. That's, that's really what's going on in your life. God's preparing you for a kingdom that he says, I can't really tell you a lot about it because you don't have the categories to understand it yet. But what you can know is that everything that's happening is shaping you and preparing you for that. So we're, we're a part of a cosmic story. We don't have to worry about it, but just understand that somehow we're a part of it. Yeah, and it's one of those things where just like any individual life, you even the things that you can understand, you can't understand till you look back on them, usually. There, there's sometimes when you can say, okay, I know exactly where this is in terms of my life story. Usually you don't. Usually you look back and say, oh, I can see how that that experience fit in with this or how that conversation fit in with this. But usually you don't see it at the time, which is why when you when you look back over your life, a lot of times what you're going to find out is that the most significant moments for you didn't feel significant at the time. And some of the things that felt really, really big uh, didn't turn out to be that way. You, you can only see that looking backward. Well, in terms of the big cosmic story that's going on, um, there's so much going on that you, you can't uh, understand or know right now. But you know the, you know the central plot. And, and the central plot is Ephesians 1, that God's summing up all things in Christ. Um, and that's, that's true with your little plot, too. Mm-hmm. So can you give me an example of when that's happened in your own life, when you've looked back and have seen God using you in your space and you didn't really know what was going on, but now you can see it a little bit? Yes. I mean, I, I think about um, there was one time that I was talking to somebody who was an author um, uh, that, that really meant a lot to me. And I was sort of fanboying with him. And I just said, you know, it's just your, this book that you wrote changed my life at this point. And he said, he said, you know, isn't it funny how uh, we have just the right conversation at just the right time and we read just the right book at just the right time and we make just the right friendship at just the right time. And I think about that all the time because 
um, a lot of the things that really have been pivotal in my life have been little conversations, not the big conversations where you're thinking, oh, I've got to prepare for this. We're having a big, serious talk. But just those little words that come that you that, that upend things uh, for you for a long time. I mean, for instance, I think about this all the time. I was having a conversation with this older um, man, and I was uh, thinking back to the way that I had handled something in terms of um, the way that I had responded to someone that I thought was too harsh. And, um, and I really felt guilty about how harsh I was. And, you know, people around me would say, no, you really weren't. You weren't harsh. But that wasn't reassuring to me at all. And this older guy said, well, let's just suppose that it's as bad as you think it is. What then? And he said that your problem here is pride. Because you don't think that you could really mess something up that badly. And he said, but suppose you did. Suppose it's even worse than you think. Okay, well, then what? And, I mean, that, th- th- there's probably not a day that goes by that something in my life isn't shaped by that one little sentence that happened. I think a lot of times that's what, that's what happens in our life. So if, if you're going to give advice to somebody who is thinking, I really want to... I really want to engage in culture. I want to, you know, be an ambassador for God's kingdom out there in, in my own space. I'm, I'm not, you know, Dr. Moore, but I'm somebody. Uh, what advice would you would you give them just as, as they want to be faithful, you know, out there in the world in their, in their own place? Well, I mean, the first thing is uh, you mentioned sort of knowing the, the plot line of the story. Um, I would say make sure that you're really immersed in the story of Scripture so that you're able to kind of recognize. I mean, a lot of what happens with wisdom is just recognizing, oh, I've seen this here before. I, I've seen this before. And it, 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 not in terms of your own, maybe your own experience uh, or the wisdom that comes with your own experience, but because you've been in the Scripture so much that you're able to say, oh, I, I've kind of been here before. Where have I been here before? Uh, when you have, um, maybe you're, you're talking to somebody who keeps wanting to divert the conversation to theological controversies or something. I'm like, I've been here before. Where have I been here before? John chapter four, you know, or, I mean, there's just so many uh, instances there. So be familiar with that. Um, and then I would say, find the things that, um, the, the ways that God has particularly wired, for lack of a better word, you to, um, you know, those we're all embedded in culture and we all participate in culture in various ways. But what are the aspects of culture that particularly um, you are gripped by and you're interested in and apply those those two things together? Dr. Moore, can I ask you, um, I know you are hopeful about the future of the church and its mission. Um, and I think that that can be hard for people when they're looking around. So tell me why you're hopeful. What do you see as the future of the church here where we are? Well, I'm, I'm not hopeful uh, when it comes to the American church the way that we've known it. Uh, I'm not hopeful about that. But, but actually, that is kind of hopeful because I think sometimes people think some things have to some, some things that aren't working have to go away uh, in order for some things to work, to, to happen. 
Um, so I'm not hopeful of just status quo. Um, but I am hopeful in terms of uh, two things. One of them is just the promise of Jesus. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Church has been through all kinds of things over 2000 years and continues to press forward by the spirit. But then secondly, just looking at what God is doing. I mean, if you, if you go around onto um, into communities and around the world, not just in the United States, but around the world and see the people um, in their teens and twenties who are committed to Christ uh, being transformed by the spirit um, it, it really is. It really is encouraging. So the people who are kind of doom and gloom uh, about everything. I think are people who just don't spend any time around young Christians, or who don't spend uh, very much time connected with the church globally. Because there's a lot to be encouraged about there. What do you think we need to be changing? Because you mentioned that. Well, I think that the the church uh, in the future um, cannot be dependent upon. Um, a cultural need to be Christian. Um, and, and so what is going to happen is you're going to have a church that is uh, more distinctive in a lot of ways, more out of step, not just with culture generally, but with all the subcultures, uh, rather than just being a, you know, the Christianity being a mascot of one of the subcultures. That's not going to work. And it's going to be multi-generational, multi-ethnic, and connected to uh, the global church. Um, that sounds that, exciting. Yeah, I think it is exciting. And I think the other thing that's going to have to, that is, is happening and is going to have to happen is a recovery of liturgy, not just for high church people, but for low church people too. Uh, so it's going to look different in different uh, sorts of, of places, but a kind of a uh, rhythm um, of, uh, of the Christian life in ways that I think a lot of times, at least in some sectors of evangelicalism, we've lost. How do you think that um, we can be a part of how the church is growing and changing? What, what, what advice would you give us as, as this church is moving forward in our country? Uh, well, I mean, I think the, the first thing is uh, not to get panicky um, uh, and, and also not to get cynical. And I think that's that's the big danger is is sometimes to grow cynical, especially when we see, uh, you know, a lot of idolatry and a lot of scandals and a lot of, you know, all of this sort of thing to grow really cynical and and to think um, nothing can be loved and nothing can be trusted. Um, that, that That's not the way to go. And that's what takes us back to this cosmic story. Yeah. You can always be hopeful in that. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think there's a sense just psychologically where we tend to I know for me and I think a lot of people are this way. Um, I, I still remember I had one guy who visited a church that I served, you know, 15 years ago and who wrote uh, this anonymous note that said, you look at this side of the congregation too much and you need to look at this side. I still Ooh, remember that. Awful. Why do I still remember that when I don't remember uh, how many words of encouragement came? Well, there, there's something about us that we remember those bad aspects. And I think we can have that tendency sometimes to look around and say, everything is just awful and not pay attention to the unbelievable grace and love and kindness that God is, is pouring out all over the place. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Moore, so much for joining us today. I'm really grateful for your time. Um, we had a couple of technical difficulties, so I appreciate you sticking with me. Um, but we're thankful for your voice and your presence out there as you engage in culture. It's, it's helpful and it's hopeful. Thank you. So thanks. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks all of you for listening today. I hope it was as convicting and helpful for you as it was for me. We'll link to Dr. Moore's newest book, The Courage to Stand. When you find this podcast at clearcreekresources.org, where you can also find articles, videos, sermons, and a lot more. Again, I'm Rachel. Thanks for listening.